Well, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, and good morning to you that are joining us uh, with Mercy Online. Before we get into our sermon this morning, a kind of a fun, um, special announcement, kind of an update on our ministry here. Uh, we said starting in January, as we went through our vision series for the next five years, that we want, we believe that God has called us because of Christ to be devoted to becoming a maturing, multiplying, multicultural church. Talked about that for several weeks. Well, I want to pull on that multiplying thread just a little bit here this morning and update you um, about our progress in launching a campus of Mercy Church in Northeast Charlotte. Uh, listen, to facilitate gospel multiplication, it means we want to multiply, we feel called by God to multiply everything about our ministry here, um, down to the individual, right? We feel that if God in his grace would give us someone who's in our friend network or allow us to make new friendships with someone who's far from God but, but near in proximity to us, it is our hope that we get to share the great news of the gospel and that they would come to faith in Christ, if that happens, we will multiply uh, our ministry here. More people will come to know Jesus, and we'll need to, in response to that, in a step of faith, multiply our capacity to make disciples here at Mercy. That means some of y'all are going to become community group leaders as we multiply community groups. Some of you are going to join kids ministry or student ministry as we multiply groups there. We also believe a way to multiply the gospel is through the planting of new churches here in Charlotte, in North America, and around the world. And we are committed to plant at least two churches in the next five years here. And I'll tell you from the conversations that I've had just since January, as we started that, I believe it's going to be more than that, sooner than that. Uh, but that's what it means to be a part of Mercy Church, to be a part of ascending church, is we're going to look to multiply. And it's in the spirit of reaching people, multiplying the gospel, that we intend to launch a campus of Mercy Church in Northeast Charlotte. We believe this will facilitate Gospel multiplication among the families. Uh, they're actually already uh, coming from there all the way down here to Providence Road and there at UNC Charlotte as well. Truthfully, it already has. I know, like I said, many of you have started making the drive here because you knew we were coming to you soon enough, right? And I'm excited about this. And this will be Mercy Church. Uh, our current location, Providence Road, will be one of two gatherings of Mercy Church. We will be one church in two gatherings. We'll have pastors responsible for shepherding uh, the body in both of those gatherings. So I'm encouraging you, and I'm taking the time this morning to talk about it, because I want to encourage you to pray about what is your next step. So one of our values as a church is that we help one another take next steps in following Jesus. What's your next step? Which gathering with the Lord have you belonged to? Now, we intend to have that public gathering Easter weekend. So I want you to start telling your friends for, for Northeast, that kind of public launch. But I'm bringing it up this weekend because um, for a couple of reasons, we've decided to go ahead and encourage our launch team to begin worshiping together next weekend up in Northeast Charlotte. That's going to free up. Yeah, our team's pumped over here. We're excited about it, really. Listen, that's going to free up seats here at our Providence Road location, and it's going to help uh, our launch team go ahead and lay the groundwork for the ministry the Lord is calling them to there. Um, so they're going to begin next weekend. I'll be up there preaching. It'll be on Sunday nights. Some of our worship team will be leading. Uh, there's going to be gathering for training and then worship. But the reason I'm saying all this is we're going to send them out this morning from Providence Road. And so a lot of the people that you see most Sunday mornings, um, you're not going to see them starting next week, which means two things. It means some of you got to step off the sidelines here. We're sending some of our 
Like, we're not sending leftovers. We're sending our best, all right? We are the leftovers, the ones of us who are remaining here, okay? We're sending our best up there. Um, They're committed to that work. That's going to leave some big shoes to fill. And I believe God is going to call some of you to step up and say, okay, what can I do? Here I am, Lord. Send me, right? Right even here. For all of us, and I think that needs to be a question in our community groups this weekend. What's the Lord, what step is the Lord calling me, calling my family to take? But secondly, though, we got to pray over this team as they go, all right? we got to pray over them and, and ask the Lord's blessing on that. So I'm going to ask Pastor Richard to come on up here. Um, pastor Richard is our Northeast Campus pastor. You can cheer for him as he comes up. Listen, if you want to join our launch team effort, you reach out to him, Richard at mercycharlotte.com. Let us know. Um, There are a few other staff that are going to be going out as well. So if you are a part of the launch team on our staff, I'm thinking about Mandy Foster, Joseph Anderson. Come on up here to the front of the stage, Scott Urbanic. Um, Who else is a part of that? There's Noah Anderson, Becky Bender, Garen Stewart, just a whole bunch of y'all. Get on up here. Um, it's making me nervous thinking about who we're sending out. So I'm, I'm showing you them. And listen, I know if you're watching online, you may only see the tops of heads. All right, that's okay. Uh, this is what it is. Yeah, y'all can feel free to wave. Listen, I, don't, I want you to, I know you love these people. They serve our church so faithfully. And if you don't see them next week, I don't want you to think that the, I don't know, the rapture happened, you missed it. And like, and why did I miss it? And what does that mean for all of us? Yeah, it's a lot of weird questions. So I want you all to see them. Uh, I want you to pray for them. And now what I want to do is say, if you are a part of the launch team, I know we got a bunch of folks that are going to join this. Um, I want you to go ahead and stand up as well, wherever you are. If you're a part of the launch team, yep, now's the time. Pop tall. Here we go. Yep, there we go. It's our folks. That's right. That's right. Yep. I want you to stay standing. Don't sit back down. If you're online, you're watching, uh, stand up on your couch, on your bed, whatever. Um, This is a big moment, and we want to pray over you and send you out. I know most of them are coming to the 11 because it's a long drive, and they had to kind of, so. Um, So let's pray over them, church. You join me and praying God's blessing over them as we send them out. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, your grace on us. Thank you for the unity you have given us as a church body. Thank you for multiplying uh, the hope of the gospel through just fallible, messy people like us. Um, that We don't want to take that for granted. Forgive us where we do. We are honored that we get to be a part of your redemption story here in Charlotte. And so we pray as we send out brothers and sisters, family, to go and be a part of this new work up in Northeast Charlotte. God, we pray that you would save We pray that you would bring people far from you back to saving faith. Bring the prodigals home uh, through these brothers and sisters that are going to launch this new work. God, we love you. We do this. Uh, Gospel goodbyes are hard. Um, It's hard for us, but we know that you you have such great work ahead of them. You have been faithful. We just sang it. Great is your faithfulness. And so we believe on your faithfulness as we start this new work and might more come to know you as a result of this. God, we commit ourselves again. We throw ourselves at your mercy. And would you bless us, Father, as we go forward. Bless Pastor Richard and uh, the others that are going to be leading this effort. God, give give them abundance of grace um, and give the team unity as they prepare for launch. 
We send them out in the hope of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, listen, before y'all go, yeah, I know you want to cheer. Here's how we're going to do it. Say Santa. All right, I think we should make like, you know this thing we say at the end of service, you are sent? We're all going to say it together, but we're not going to do it like in lame, you are sent. Like we don't actually believe it, all right? So we're going to say it like we would at a football game or a basketball game. Remember when we used to go to those? We were, it was this cool thing. Like, you are sent, and we we're so pumped about it because we could cheer, so we're going to do it in church, all right? So I'm gonna say, on the count of three, one, two, three. You are sent. All right, now you can cheer for them. Love y'all. All right, you got your Bible. Oh, hey, thanks, man. I'm going to miss you being right here. It'll be so hard. Yeah, thank you. That's so nice. Um, Luke 24, you got your Bible. Luke 24. This is the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's the morning of the third day after Jesus died on the cross. There's some women who were followers of Jesus. They were going to his tomb to perform a pretty common burial ritual. They get there, the stones rolled away, the tomb is empty. All of a sudden, two angels appear. These women are understandably both confused and scared by what's in front of them. And Luke records the exchange of conversation. It actually just records what we're going to look at is what the angel said, starting in verse 5 of Luke 24. I love this question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember? Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee? Saying it is necessary It's necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and then rise on the third day. Remember? And then they remembered his words. Remember? Basically, nothing about this moment should be a surprise to you because he said it was necessary, and he did exactly what he said was necessary. The angels are referencing Jesus's own words that Luke records back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. I'll show it to you. You can um, flip there if you want to, but just real quick. Jesus says to the disciples, it is necessary, necessary that the son of man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Necessary. So today, we're beginning a new series of sermons that will take us up to Easter weekend. From now until Easter weekend, we'll follow the path of Jesus from the upper room with his disciples where he ate the Last Supper all the way to this scene in the empty tomb, and actually a little bit past it. To do that, we're going to be in these final three chapters of Luke's gospel, Luke 22 to 24. The title of our series is Death and Resurrection why Jesus had to die. I think the question of necessity, why? I think it's a question we Christians really need to wrestle with a little bit and and answer today. I think it's the one that most of us are afraid to say out loud that we actually ask sometimes. For most people, it's not hard to believe Jesus 
died. I mean, if you believe that he lived, then you believe that he died, just like everybody else. The resurrection, that's a whole different thing, right? You believe that he actually got out of the grave. Everything hinges on that. But then there's a kind of some basic questions that don't necessarily revolve around the historicity of the event, the why questions. It's the ones that the, you know, the eight-year-old asks, but they'll say it out loud, and though we're thinking it, they'll actually say it, right? Like, why, they're bold enough, why did Jesus have to die? And we'll respond, and we'll say, well, you know, when Adam and Eve were, when God made Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel against God, and then sin entered the world, and with sin came death, and so then we needed Jesus to die for, and they'll stop and they'll go, whoa, 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 but why did he have to die? Like, wait, why didn't right after, you know, they sinned and Satan starts lying to them, why didn't God send down like a huge fist and just punch Satan in the face and destroy him right there, that second, why? You're like, oh man, uh, I'm looking at my Bible, giant God fist is not in here, struggling to find Why? You know, why wait so long? And then why would Jesus suffer this humiliating, gruesome death on the cross? I mean, you're God, right? Why? Why submit yourself to that? And why is Jesus the, here's the one that presses on a lot of our hearts, maybe a little bit more of an adult question. Why is Jesus the only way to bring forgiveness and salvation? Why? And a question a lot of, I think, our culture would ask if we start a conversation Why does it all matter to me anyway? So as we journey these next few weeks towards the cross and empty tomb, we're going to talk about why Jesus had to die. But I do want to say this. This is not a defensive challenge. This is an invitation. This series is intended to be an offer. It's born out of the spirit of it. It's born out of Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. My hope is that you'll take God up on his offer to you wherever you are in your faith. If you're um, with us and you're like, you know what, Uh, you're the skeptic, self-identified. You're the skeptic. This is a silly faith. And I've been looking for some ways to poke some holes in this thing because I'm so tired of people believing this thing and you're angry at it and everything. Hey, come listen. And I want to invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. All right, if you are the wayward soul, like self-identified, I haven't been around church, that sort of thing, for a long time. I don't even know about this stuff, but I know I need something. Taste and see that the Lord is good. No matter where, Christian, who's been around the things of Christ and around the church for a long time, have your heart stirred, allow the Lord to stir up your affections for him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. I hope you'll just taste and see. We're going to walk with Jesus for a few weeks. Walk with us. Taste and see for yourself that he's good. Now that you know where we're going to, we're going to end up, there at the empty tomb and the road to Emmaus and all this awesome stuff's going to happen at the end, let's go back to the start. We're going to start Luke 22. That's where we're going to be today. Actually, that's where we're going to start today. What I'm going to do for you today, this is going to be an introductory sermon that's going to cover the seven scenes from Luke 22 to Luke 24. All right, seven scenes we're going to cover. We're going to take a short look at each of these scenes. And in each one of them, I'm going to show you one of the reasons Jesus came to die and why he had to die. 
Some of these are going to be more talking about exclusivity. Some of these are going to talk about more of the effect of what he did through his death and resurrection. Each one of, each one of these, I want to show you just a little bit of why it's necessary. This is like seven sermons in a sermon. So you're going to have to hold on, right? Get your Bible open in front of you. And I'm just, we're going to go through it little by little. And then each week we're going to open up one of these scenes and see it in full. All right. Uh, I do this as a way of preparing you as a way of hopefully whetting your appetite for the feasts that I think are coming each week as we look into this incredibly holy, climactic moment that all of Scripture has been building towards. So if you're taking notes, seven reasons why the death and resurrection of Jesus were necessary, we start in the scene with the meal. Luke 22 19 through 20. Next week, we'll look at this upper room scene called the Last Supper, where we'll see Jesus institute a sacred meal with his followers. And it's to be a symbolic reminder of his death. I want to tell you, we're going to take that meal together today. If you're online, if you need to pause this or whatever and get the elements, we're going to take this meal together each week as we journey towards uh, Easter weekend. And we'll take it there as well. All right. Listen to Luke 22, 19 through 20. I'm going today, again, like I said, just a little highlight, so we're going to just go right to the core of it. He took bread. This is Jesus with his disciples, upper room, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant. Covenant is, I'm going to say it just in short today, the language of how God defines his relationship with his people. If, if you find yourself like, what is this word? Covenant seems important. We're going to dive a lot into it next week. But it's amazing to me that from the opening pages of scripture, and it's right up here, and it's all the way to the last page, God, it's clear God wants to be with his creation. He wants to be with them. He created us to be in fellowship with him. No other religion can offer such a rich meaning to life. Our purpose is to know God and walk with him. Present tense, here and now. Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's God laying out a table for us to pull up to and fellowship with him and to talk with him, the meal table. It shows up throughout scripture as this depiction of relationship. Even in the presence of enemies, there's a family feast. You think of Revelation and there's a wedding banquet. You know this, you want to get to know somebody, you have a meal with them. You sit down at the table. You want to know God, he's inviting you to sit down at his table. Deep in the soul, we want that kind of, I think think we all want some sort of healthy, loving family dynamic. We want to be loved. We want to love others. That's, that's inherently put in the human heart and soul by a God whose table we belong at. The other night, there's a thunderstorm while we're eating dinner. And um, you know, I don't know if you know, but it's rained recently. It's like every day forever. And so this is one of them, praise the Lord, sun's out today. Um, and, but I had this thought as we're sitting at the dinner table and storm, thunder and all that stuff. This is Psalm 23. It's not just that we were surviving the storm. We were laughing and telling stories during the storm. This is what we need with God. 
We need it. We meant, we're meant for it. And some of you are like, I don't really feel the need for a table with God. I got a pretty good thing going. Listen, to you, I'd say two things. First, whatever sense of table you have is a gift from God. Secondly, and that's meant to point you back to God. Secondly, that table is far more fragile than you realize. One phone call, one hurtful comment, one diagnosis changes everything. So if you think that you have it together right now, let me plead with you. See that table as a gift from God meant to point you to him and back to his table. This is the first reason Jesus had to die, to bring us back into fellowship with God. This is what Jesus is calling us back to in the communion meal. There was an old covenant between man and God that if man obeyed God's law, he would remain at the table, but we rejected it. This is what Paul says in Romans 7, the commandment, the old covenant that was meant for life, meant to draw me close to God, resulted in death for me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and then through it killed me. In other words, instead of obeying God's law, the second I saw it, the sin in me saw it and disobeyed it, breaking fellowship with God by our own volition, we left the table. And so this meal with the disciples is powerful imagery because Jesus is saying God has made a way for us to sit back down in fellowship with him. And that way is himself. You can have fellowship. I don't know a better word for this. (laughs) Fellowship with God, the God you created for salvation, y'all. It's not Good news if all it does is save us from hell. It also saves us to God. He made a way to the table. That's why we need him. We can't get to the table without him. But through him, John 14, 6, we can get to the one, get to the table that we're meant for. He had to die to bring us back to God's table. Let's keep going. Scan down just a little bit to verse 25 of chapter 22. See our next scene. I'm going to call this scene the dumb argument. All right. Right after the meal, the most absurd argument in the history of dumb arguments arises between the disciples. We're going to look at this in two weeks. Like, of all the dumb arguments you've ever seen, you've ever been a part of, none of them win the gold medal because of this one that we have recorded. This is the dumbest one, all right? Here's what Luke records it, starting in verse 25. Then, I'm talking like right then, okay? The only thing that happens in between is this announcement that Judas is going to betray, and then here we go. A dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. (laughs) I mean, Jesus is there. But anyways, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. This is Jesus rebuking them. And those who have authority over them have have themselves called benefactors. It's not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is the greatest among you should become like the youngest. And whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Listen to me, nothing keeps us from seeing ourselves rightly, from seeing others rightly, from seeing God rightly like our own pride. These guys were at the table with Jesus, the living God, and they are arguing about who is the greatest among them. It's like if you and your friends are out playing some pickup football and Tom Brady walks onto the field, regardless of what you think about him, Tom Brady walks onto the field and is going to be the quarterback. And then y'all spend time arguing about which one among you is going to, is the greatest wide receiver. It doesn't matter. Tom Brady's on the field. Receiver talent is irrelevant. 
We have seen that year and year and year after year, right? He makes receivers great. Everybody else is inconsequential to what happens. Jesus is explaining as long as they're after their own greatness, not only is it absurd, because he's the one to give them power for life and ministry, but if they're after their own greatness, they'll never see the greatness of God. You can't build your kingdom and God's kingdom at the same time. Maybe the biggest thing in the way of you seeing God is you. You don't think you need God because you got you, right? Actually, you're consumed by you. The problem is nothing will be ever, nothing will ever be enough for you. I mean, think about it. You've been in charge of you. How is you working out for you, right? I'm going to tell you, you are a terrible God. You are demanding, but you are never satisfied. See, I know there's this deep inner desire for all of us to be somebody, to be great, more known, more powerful, more wealthy, whatever it is, that pursuit never stops. I mean, back to our guy, Tom Brady, who was asked recently which one out of all of his Super Bowl rings is his favorite Super Bowl ring. He said without skipping a beat, the next one, the next one. It's like such a great illustration of the human soul. We want more, we'll never be satisfied until then someday eventually we just get really disappointed. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to eradicate our pride, to make war on it and eradicate it. So Jesus comes to set you free from you. And he does so by being greater, greatest, completely perfect. He had to be perfect, a greatness so great we can never even think to attain it. And then the great one serves. And he says, follow me there. Don't live for yourself. Die to yourself. And as paradoxical as it seems, then you will truly live. The perfect one humbles himself and says, follow me and go low. In fact, wash other people's feet low. Love those who hate you low. Watch me die for you low. That was just the model. It doesn't deal with the root of pride, though. In his death, he eliminated all reason for boasting. Because now the way to glory is not by building. Instead, it's by belief. That levels the playing field. It's by faith in his death and resurrection that you get everything. So lay your greatness burden, the desire to build your kingdom, lay it down. Lay it down. Be free of it. He has one greatness for you. He has one eternity with God in heaven as a son or daughter. So pride has no right to run your life anymore. I can't wait to dive more into that in week two. Here's week three. Keep going. Go to verse 42. We're going to call this scene the cup. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. In three weeks, we're going to follow Jesus there into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll see this really intense time of prayer between he and God. He's in such agony that he sweats blood. And you're going to hear him cry out to God the Father, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The holy, all of this, all of scripture is, I know, but there's just something about the space here that Luke allows us to look into and God allows us to look into. The cup is referring to Isaiah 51, where God calls this cup 
the cup of staggering, the cup of his fury. Jeremiah 49 calls it the cup of his punishment for disobeying him. If you're like, I need more on that. What is this cup thing? That's in three weeks. Like I say, we're just surveying. What we fail to see or feel so often in this life is how egregious our sin really is against God. God is holy. Our sin is open rejection and defiance of both his love and his authority. John Piper says it this way in his book, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. So I'm not doing anything like that today, right? Like you're getting getting off really easy. Um, But he says it this way. He says, failure to love him is not trivial. It's treason. Since God is just, he doesn't sweep these crimes under the rug of the universe. He feels a holy wrath against them. Not to punish would be unjust. The demeaning of God would be endorsed. Therefore, God sends his own son to absorb his wrath. That's why Jesus had to die, to absorb the wrath of God. I know this idea of wrath The wrath of God does not get a warm greeting in a culture that is steeped in the pursuit of warm, fuzzy feelings. It's in this week that we're going to look, we'll talk a lot more about why it had to be that way. Why was a human sacrifice needed? Why, God, didn't you just forgive us? Maybe you're new to Christianity and you're like, this seems crazy. What's up with the wrath of God? I will tell you, though, all of us believe that there's believe that justice should win, right? That right should win out over wrong. I'll tell you the reality is until you see your sin as deserving of God's holy wrath, you will never, ever see a true need for Jesus. You might tip your hat to him. You'll never worship him. Not until you see that he has taken the cup of God's fury and willingly drank it all for us. Next scene. In a very tragic, relatable moment, we're going to see Peter deny any relationship with Jesus. Uh, Look at verse 32 of Luke 22. It's a a room, up in the upper room, I know I'm taking you back a little bit. The next scene is going to be forward where Peter denies Jesus three times. But I want you to see this thing that Jesus says. He predicts Peter's denial. He says to Peter, you, Peter... I'm just showing you the very end of it. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, listen, Jesus doesn't just predict that Peter will deny him. He predicts a future beyond his denial. A returning to God and a ministry that's going to come with it. And there, right after, as you go back through the scene and you see Peter deny him three times and you hear the rooster crow, Luke says, as Jesus is being shuffled off in chains, Jesus looked at Peter. They made eye contact. And Peter breaks down. He lost it. Of course he did. He felt the weight of his betrayal of his friend, of his brother, of his Lord. Jesus' words are being fulfilled, and something changed in Peter right there. We see a different Peter from then on. Not still an imperfect Peter, yes, but devoted to the Lord. And here's what I want you to see, is that Jesus didn't leave him right there. Jesus did not leave Peter in his shame. No, he took Peter's shame so that Peter could turn back and carry out the purpose the Lord had for him. Why did Jesus have to die? To take away our shame. Y'all, there's a tornado raging, I feel like, in society right now that we call cancel culture. 
where someone is permanently vilified and ostracized for their sin. And we Christians are some of the worst at doing it. How quickly would the Christian Twitterverse have canceled Peter forever? I mean, three betrayals? Bye. <laughs> like, long gone. Thank goodness Jesus was not done with him yet. What great hope. See, the product of, of the guilt of our sin, that, that, that's to lead us to conviction. The purpose of conviction leads us to repentance, which is a turning away. Like, forget, I'm turning away. And to see Christ in shackles being led off to carry the guilt of our sin. And in the great news of the gospel, he takes my guilt and my shame, and I take his righteousness. He goes and he puts guilt and shame to death. He rises, he sits at the Father and says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far my sin is from me. He's not sitting in heaven still burdened by the shame of my sin. It's gone. And just as it's gone from him, it's gone from me. Think of all the people Jesus did that to. He had such a pattern of taking away shame. Different kinds of shame. You think of Mary Magdalene, you think of the tax collector, the woman with blood, Zacchaeus, all different types of shame. But he didn't just take their sin, he took the burden that they felt. And by accepting them then, he, he took their shame, and they get his reputation. And to you, Christian, who has betrayed our Lord, Christ has taken your shame on the cross. And he put it in the grave, and he buried it there. And it's gone. So you can carry the shame of your sin no more. There's a song we sing sometimes with powerful lyrics called Before the Throne of God Above. We sing it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. The enemy does this actively towards us. That's why we sing it. It's Satan actively drawing old sins to mind, sins that Jesus has died for. We believe he has died for, that he has put in the grave. And he's still trying to convince me that I should still bear shame for them. We keep singing, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is now counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and then pardon me. He died to take away our shame. Keep going into chapter 23. We're going to see three scenes we're going to put together, which are the trials of Jesus. Each of them escalate in humiliation. I want to draw your attention to Luke 23, 18 through 20. Just scan down there. This is the most humiliating of them all. The mob cries out together, take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Everyone in the scene of the trials is guilty except Jesus. Pilate and Herod are guilty of letting an innocent man suffer, choosing self-preservation over righteousness. Barabbas is guilty of murder. The crowd is guilty of bloodlust. And Jesus, the one innocent one among them, is sentenced to a criminal's punishment. 
In all of this, we're meant to see two things about God's love. First is the length he is willing to go to sacrifice himself for us. And the second is the degree of unworthiness we have when he saved us. This is why Jesus had to die, to show the wealth of God's grace towards sinners. His grace really is amazing. I mean, it saved a wretch like me. Our sin runs deep. His love runs deeper. You cannot sin to the depths that his grace cannot reach you. Who needs to just receive that today? His grace is deeper. We go forward and we see the crucifixion, Luke 23. On Good Friday, that's where we're going to go. He's crucified between two criminals and we call it Good Friday. The obvious question is how in the world is that good? Jesus was murdered. It's horrible. It's only good because of what it effects, what it causes. It's this well-known passage that we'll look at again then as well in Isaiah, which talks in very specific detail about the suffering of the servant who would one day bear the punishment for the sins of the world. And at virtually every step of Jesus's passion account, which is what it's often called, that path from the upper room to the empty tomb, there is this fulfillment happening every step of the way of God's promise from Isaiah. And there's one promise that's become very powerful to me in my study and prep for this. It's right at the heart of the prophecy in Isaiah. I'll show it to you, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. You can think of the piercing, right? The hands and feet. You can think of the crushing. You can think of the, our punishment. His punishment for our peace was on him. And this last one's what got, got me. He, we are healed by his wounds. That's a fascinating image in the purpose of Jesus' death. Why did Jesus have to die? To fulfill God's promise to heal sinners. See, the effect of the death of Jesus is often called in Christian circles the great exchange. Jesus took the punishment we deserved, but it was more than just a transfer of my guilt onto him. He transferred his life his righteousness onto me. This is why not just any human could die, why it had to be God, because he goes into our place and we go into his. It's hard to fathom this, yet it is beautiful and powerful. He's perfectly righteous. He's the son of God. He has the power of God. And the rest of the New Testament says, now that power is given to us. We're not just set free, but the power and presence of God is with us, walking around with us, fighting sin with us. We are little temples of God's presence walking around. And because of that power, we are healed from the things that used to enslave us. So to the man or woman addicted to porn right now, you can be set free because of the power that comes in the great exchange and you can be healed. To the person overwhelmed by anger, you can find peace from that power. To the one who's feeling defeated by anxiety, you can find victory. I'm not saying it's easy. In fact, on your own, you can't be healed from that anxiety. It takes a power beyond you, a God-sized power. And that power is actually available to you in the great exchange. We'll look more at that Good Friday, which leads us to the final scene. Our scene that we started with today, the empty tomb. It's the hardest to believe for skeptics, I think. But it's the scene all of Christianity hangs on. Every belief system has got to have an answer for death. 
Either you believe something happens beyond the grave or you believe this life is all there is. But death, we know, is a looming certainty for all of us. So since none of us have been beyond the grave, all of us are believing something about it. To believe nothing happens, that is belief. So to you skeptics, you might as well spend this next few weeks tasting and seeing. Evaluate it for yourself. Because if we're wrong about the afterlife, you have nothing to lose by investigating it. But if we're right, then eternity hangs in the balance. So you might as well look into it. I believe the Lord will begin to do some work in you. There's no question, though, what the tone of Easter Sunday is going to be like here at Mercy Church. We will celebrate. Why? Because King Jesus got out of the grave. He got out of the grave. And if I have chosen to attach myself to his death, if I believe he died for me, then I get to attach myself to his resurrection. And I believe I have victory over death so I can sing with the New Testament church in Corinth that when this corruptible body is clothed one day with incorruptibility, this mortal body clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Because the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Why Jesus had to die? So that he could rise in victory over death. So taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm praying for you over the course of these next several weeks that by Easter you might be ready to shout with the Corinthians past and with some charlatans present. Thanks be to God who gives us victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, would you, in your kindness, make it clear to us through your Holy Spirit as we dive into, as we explore your word, as we preach, as your word is preached, it is studied among the saints, as seekers investigate it, Skeptics deal with it. We know that you, you are not only all powerful, but you are good. And you see us as children that you want to bring back home. So I pray that you would soften hearts, soften minds. Would you illuminate your word to us? And we see you, would our eyes be widened to your glory and your goodness over the course of these next few weeks together. Oh, might we taste and see how good the Lord is. As we transition into communion, I want you to simply uh, stay in a posture of prayer. Joseph, um, our Northeast Campus Associate, he's going to come and lead our time in communion. But I want you to just stay in a posture of prayer. What do you need to turn from? What sin has been grabbing hold of you? And you're going to need to turn from it so that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. Which of these reasons, these promises, which of these need to stir your heart? Spend a moment, Christian, thanking the Lord for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Non-Christian, consider, receive his invitation. Maybe today is your day. Yes, Lord, I believe.
I believe. I'm turning from my sin. I believe. You spend a moment praying, and then Joseph will come and lead. We are going to stay right here in Luke chapter 22. And in verse 15, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Brothers and sisters, Jesus here is desiring to be near us that we would remember We would remember the reality that he bled and died for us. Verse 19 says, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Remember, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' body was broken so that we may be healed. Let us take the bread. Thank you, Jesus. He continues. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, Jesus said, this is the cup poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. So consider, brothers and sisters, that while Jesus was going to the cross to drink the wrath of God full, we get to drink the new covenant which says that we are forgiven for our sons. Let us remember, take the cup and drink. Oh, Jesus, we remember, we consider, we believe, we love, We treasure and we anticipate your return. Thank you so much for your body and your blood, which allows us to feast at the table of God. You are faithful to us. You are kind to us. You are gracious to us, and we love you. So thank you. Thank you. We remember your goodness toward us. We have tasted and seen. Let us taste and see all the more. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your perfect name.